this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn in your copy of God's word to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Beginning in verse 1, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under, his, under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the blessing of it. Father, thank you for the means of grace that it is. How your word is powerful. How it's like a sharp two-edged sword. Piercing even down to the depth, separating the bone from the marrow. Father, how your word is like a consuming fire. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit will take this word, use it in our lives to transform us, to conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he receive all glory due his name from what we say and how we pray and what we hear this morning, as we have gathered together in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, a very short psalm, but it's loaded full of some really great things. Jesus Christ is the present glorious king. Amen. There we Okay, good. So I was worried that we might not all be starting at the same spot. So. The psalmist here for the sons of Korah begins with the concept that our God is worthy of worship. And, and when you begin thinking about God being worthy of worship, a lot of things come to mind. Yeah, you know, I was this week when I was kind of thinking through the psalm, I was like, all right, if if, if I were going to start the way that they'd clap your hands, all peoples shout to God with a voice of joy. All right. So we need to worship God. Okay, so what reasons do I have to worship God? Like, what would I put on the list? And of course, salvation was the first thing that came to mind, that he saved a, a wretched sinner like me, that he sent Christ into the world um, uh, to that end for us, as it says in the creed, for us men and for our salvation, uh, that God made the world, that he has caused us to reflect his image and his glory. And there are a whole host of things that came to mind as to why I should worship God and why God is worthy of worship. What didn't come to mind was the very first thing the psalmist says as to why God is worthy to be worshipped here in Psalm 47. Notice what he says. Clap your hands, 
all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. So worship God. Why? For the Lord most high is to be feared. Should be on my short list, but it's usually not. When I think through reasons to worship God, the fact that God should be feared is not normally on my list. But that's where the psalmist starts. The psalmist starts with the fear of the Lord as one of the chief reasons why he should be worshipped. Of course, as we know in the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right insight and right understanding into how our world really is starts with the fear of God. Now, I want to go ahead and and push out of the way a very faulty notion that probably everyone in the room has heard at some point if you've been to church just a little bit. I want to tell you what the fear of God is not. The fear of God is not predominantly having respect for God in his honored position as Lord. Nor is it predominantly having awe of God because of his majestic power. Though respect for God and awe of God are legitimate reasons to worship him. And the word fear can mean those things. Most of the time, if not all of the time, when the Old Testament writers said that we should fear the Lord, they weren't saying that we ought to respect him more than we respect other entities. And they weren't saying that we should be awed by him more than we're awed by other things. You know what they mean? Break down this, this Hebrew word for you. This Hebrew word fear means fear. To be afraid. God is worthy of worship because he should be feared. And the scripture goes out of its way to tell us, to remind us, and we talked about this some last week and the week before in the psalm before that one, that we should not be afraid Of the things around us and of our circumstances and of our enemies and of our trials and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hundreds of times in the scripture, it talks to us about not being afraid and not being anxious and not being worried. Except when it comes to God. And then you know what it tells us to do? Be afraid. Have fear, like real, genuine terror. Why? Because he is the only truly holy, righteous, powerful being in existence. By the very power of his word, we live and we move and we have our being. And at any moment, the very precipice and reality of your life could be altered or ended with no notice whatsoever simply by the divine sovereign will and power of almighty God. If you're going to be afraid, be afraid of that guy. 
What does Jesus say about this in the New Testament? Do not fear man who can only kill your body. But fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I mean, let's let's sub in what we usually hear. Don't respect and have awe of man who can only kill your body, but have greater respect and greater awe for God who can kill. That doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. Fear God because he is a righteous judge over all the earth. And those who are opponents to the Judeo-Christian religion usually point to this idea of fear as an objection to the religious system. Why would you ever want to love a God or honor a God or worship a God that wants you to be afraid of them? Listen, it's not so much that God wants us to be afraid of him. It's more that God wants us to live in reality. And if you're living in reality and you come to understand the truth that there is a being that sovereignly has control over absolutely everything, including the next breath that you breathe and your eternal well-being of your spiritual self. In that reality, the only right way to view that being is with some measure of actual fear. God wants us to live in reality. And so the very first thing the psalmist starts with, not thank you, God, that you saved us, not thank you, God, that you made us a people, not thank you, God, that you've overthrown our enemies, not thank you, God, that you've done all these great things, not that you've given us a tabernacle, not that you've given us a law, not that you've given us your word. We clap our hands and we raise our voices and we praise your name because you are to be feared. I would encourage you, as I have been encouraging myself this week, to include in your thoughts the worthiness of God's praise because of the fearful reality of his being. Friend, it will help you in your sanctifying walk with the Lord. Because the slight pleasure of the sinful wayward action does not compare to the disdain that will be expressed by this God that should be feared. It's a wonderful place to start worship is the fear of God. Why else should God be worshipped besides that? It says here in our text in verse 2 and verses 6 and 7. That God is worthy of worship because he is a great king. In verse 2, he's a great king over all the earth. In verse 6, it speaks about singing praises to his name because he is our king. In verse 7, there's the repeat as we saw last time in Hebrew poetry where he's the king over all of the earth. Now, I'll just go ahead and kind of address the elephant in the room. We as really good Americans don't like the notion of a king. It's kind of, yeah, right. That, that's, that's kind of 
why we are America. You know, there was a king. We didn't like what that king was doing. Had some people write some philosophical treaties on why you shouldn't have a king. And we said, we're not going to have one. And so ever since then, we've not had one. And then we always kind of crack the jokes, you know, every 4th of July rolls around and, you know, I'm, I'm 1776% sure I don't care what's going on with the monarchy in England, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. And we crack our jokes and we say our things. But at the end of the day, you are a sojourner in this world. You just happen to be blessed by God to be born of parents that live in the United States of America. And you've received all of the benefits that come from being a citizen of this particular society. But if you are in Christ... You have a king, an absolute sovereign monarch who cannot be overthrown. And you're just going to have to figure out a, a way as a good American to be okay with that. Because you're temporarily living in a society that doesn't want a king, but you're everlastingly living in the great city of God that has always had a king. And God himself, the triune God that we prayed to earlier this morning, is that great king. And he's worthy of worship because of that. Now, I'm already two strikes into this thing. Because when I'm thinking through reasons to praise God, I'm not listing because God should be feared. And I'm not usually listing because God's a great king. Not normally the things that come to mind when I'm listing out praiseworthiness of my God. The psalmist is helping us now. Now, on the third reason why the psalmist gives that we that God is worthy of our worship, we kind of start moving into areas where we might would have said something like this. And one of the things is that God has victory for us. In verse three, notice how it's worded. He subdues peoples not under his feet, which we do see in other psalms, but under us. And nations under our feet. In verse 8, God then reigns over the nations. God is the one who sits on his holy throne. So we see that we have victory and that God has victory. That our victory is the shared victory of God himself. I've used this illustration before. But it's, it's the perfect illustration for us to really see how this works. So growing up as a kid, I was, like all kids my age were, massive Chicago Bulls fan, massive Michael Jordan fan, loved watching him play. Those of you youngins out here are having that really crazy, ridiculous debate about certain players in the league right now being the GOAT over Michael Jordan. Please stop. It's just not true. You're wrong. It's incorrect. There's actually no way that you can make that argument and seem like a sensible human being. So I just want to throw that out. That's for free. Not really part of the sermon. Just want to help insert some other kind of truth into some people's lives today that I've talked with about this ridiculous issue. So in all of those championships that the Bulls won, there was a group of about seven of those guys, sometimes eight of those guys that would play most of the minutes and most of the games. And then there were a couple of guys on all of those championship teams that never played a minute in a playoff game. Certainly didn't play any minutes in the championship series. And then when they handed out championship rings, guess who got one? The dudes down on the end of the bench who never played. 
they were able with all integrity and honesty and clear conscience to say, I am a world champion. They contributed nothing to the championship. I mean, they might have been a practice dummy for Jordan to dunk on, you know. But other than that, they contributed nothing. They scored no points. They guarded no one. They logged no time. They made no assists. Zero real game application contributions. But they get to wear their ring. Forever in the record books, they will be listed as a champion. Verse 3. He subdues peoples under us. I didn't do that. The subject of that sentence is what God has done. I didn't do that. He won the victory. And I get to share in his victory as if it was mine. I'm the bench warmer who never takes off the warm up. Who then gets a ring as a champion at the end. Nations are placed under our feet. The New Testament talks about it like this. It says that in Christ, we are seated in the heavenly places with him. We sit on a throne with Christ and we rule and we reign with him. Did I have anything to do with any of it? Absolutely not. The only thing that I brought to the equation was my wretchedness and my sinfulness. And Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection has given me all of the victories that he has won as if they were already mine. You know what? He's worthy of worship for that. And then finally, in verses 4 and 9 of reasons why God is worthy of worship. He chooses and then supplies our inheritance for us. Notice in verse 4, he chooses our inheritance for us. The glory of Jacob whom he loves. Verse 9, the princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. This is both language, both of these, the clearly in verse four and then more metaphorically in verse nine is language of inheritance. The princes of the people, the noble ones have made themselves to be the assembled people of God. There's this transformation that takes place where those who thought that they were ruling on their own are now actually under the leadership of God Almighty. And instead of whatever it is that they thought that they have, they have a greater possession, a greater inheritance to be found in the work of God. And friends, the beauty of it for us is that our inheritance is conformity to the image of Jesus himself. Our inheritance is that when God sees us, he sees his son, Jesus, and not the wretched sinners that we are worthy of destruction. 
He has done this for us. And you know what? It's worthy of worship for that. It's worthy of worship for that. And so it says here in the psalm that God is to be exalted. This is what is to happen. God's name is to be praised. Our very lives are to be filled with the exaltation of the name of our God. How we live, how we speak, how we relate to other people. All the things that happen in our lives should be a reflection of the worthiness of our God in Christ through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And notice the language that it uses, the the two chief things that it says. It says in verse 2 that there's to be a shout. It repeats that again in verse 5. And then it says that there's to be the sound of the trumpet, that God ascends with the sound of the trumpet. Now... Before people start getting off like a really radical tear about the sound of the trumpet. Notice very carefully the direction God is moving at the sound of the trumpet. Please don't read into this uh, what I would consider to be a, a not best version of end times theology. God is not descending with the sound of a trumpet. He's ascending with the sound of a trumpet. This is language of victory in war. That's what this is. This is the sound of a victory in great battle. The king returns to his homeland with all of the captives that are still alive, trailing behind them in chains. And he enters into the city to the sound of thunderous applause of the people. And as he begins walking up the steps toward his throne as the victorious king, they sound the victory trumpet as he ascends to the place of the victorious Most High King. The one that has overthrown his enemies and brought peace to his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ. At his resurrection and his ascension. Moved into the throne room of glory. Seated at the right hand of the father. Making intercession for you and for me. In victory. See that. That got lost in a lot of people right there. It hurts my heart so much that we've been so skewed by such bad theology that it's hard for us to say amen to the fact that currently and presently right now seated on a throne in the heavenly place in glory at the right hand of God making intercession for us is the victorious Christ. He has victory over his enemies Right now, you say, no, they're not all defeated. Listen, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Yes, that's coming at a future time and glory one day. But friends, at the inauguration of the kingdom, at the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension. Yes, there's a great culmination of the kingdom that's yet to be had where we get to participate in the true final resurrection and we receive glorified bodies and all things reach their final end. But friends, believe me, hear me right now. The Lord Jesus Christ is reigning 
victoriously over his enemies in glory right now. Why? Because it says in Colossians that he took the certificate of guilt. And he made a public spectacle of the enemies of God by nailing all of that to the cross. When he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he demonstrated himself to be the son of God with power, the New Testament says. And everywhere he is declared Lord, God and King. And friends, he has never been defeated. And he never will be defeated. He is, he was, and he always will be the victorious king who has ascended to his throne at the sound of the victory trumpet. That's what it is right here. It's beautiful. Victory motifs. And so I want to touch on in the last couple of minutes that we have together that Jesus Christ is the present glorious King, I want to start with his crucifixion. At the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What did they hang on the sign over his head? King of the Jews. And there was an argument made about that sign at the crucifixion. Don't say that he is the king of the Jews. Say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And do you remember the response back? I have said what I've said. When asked directly, are you a king then? Jesus didn't say no. Because he's full of truth and he does not lie. My kingdom is where? Not of this earth. Because if it was, my servants would be coming and they would be fighting. And they, This is not the realm of my kingdom. It just so happens that this realm falls under the larger realm of his kingdom. It's a part of that great kingdom. So even at his crucifixion, there was a declaration of truth that he is the king. Now, turn forward a little bit in the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to see what Paul has to say about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Paul is encouraging Timothy. He's trying to help him walk through some of the more difficult things of Ministry and helping to lead churches and to lead people and to show people the way of Christ. And then notice, notice how he closes this letter. In verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession of the presence of many witnesses. And I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Here's that. Listen. Sovereign power of God. We just heard from Psalm 47. And of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So we have this historical reality of the incarnation of Christ. 
that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, a future hope of glory that is to come, which he will bring about at the proper time. Now, listen to what Paul says. I need you to hear this. I need you to see this. This is very important. He does not say he who will be the blessed and only sovereign king. It's not what he says. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When Paul was encouraging Timothy, and we're going to read the next verse. But when Paul was encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight, to walk in sanctification, to be renewed in his holiness, to be brave and bold with the gospel, both in his own life and in the lives of other people. He points to the sovereign reality of Christ as his current, present, glorious king. Notice what he says. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and, listen to this, listen to this, eternal dominion. Amen. Now, I want to break down because it's super complicated. Here in the Greek text, eternal dominion means eternal dominion. Like it's not something real fancy going on here. Dominion that lasts forever. You say, Philip, why are you hammering this? Because for quite a long while now in Christian churches, for several hundred years, in fact, There's been a false notion that Jesus still has something that has to happen to become the all the way king. That he's not quite the whole king yet. Friends, eternal is bigger than forever. We're going to get a little heavy. That's philosophically deep. I understand that. But forever and eternal are not the same thing. There's a reason why most English translations, when it talks about our salvation, talks about it as everlasting life. And some translations, in my opinion, errantly say eternal life. Here's the problem. I'm not eternal. Whatever life that I have received in God had a start point. Eternity does not have a start point. Forever doesn't have an end point. And I have forever life in God in Christ. Because I will not end now. My life will be everlasting. But there was a time and there was a space and there was a reality in which I did not exist. Not true for the triune God. The triune God has always been, is and always will be. The God of light and glory is eternal. And you know what His dominion is? Eternal. It didn't have a start point. It didn't have a stop point. It doesn't have an end point. And in the middle of it, there wasn't a pause point where he took a break from having that dominion. Christ was and is and always will be the King of Kings. This is why the promise to David is not broken. Enemies of Christianity say, hey, there was this promise made. 
that someone of the line of David would sit on the throne forever. And clearly, after two generations, that stopped happening when there was great civil war and strife and the countries folded and they didn't have a king and they certainly don't have a king now. You're believing this crazy myth that has these empty promises that can be proven to be false. Except for the fact that it was never about any of those kings. It was about the king, King Jesus, who is of the line of David and has forever and all eternity been on the throne because he's sovereign and he has dominion. That's where we find our encouragement. And then in the book of Revelation, let's flip over to the book of Revelation. Everybody's favorite book. Everybody's favorite book. Revelation chapter, let's go to chapter 11 first. Revelation chapter 11. Now, we can't break down everything that's been happening to this point. But for those of you who are new several years ago, we did a verse by verse breakdown of the book of Revelation. We still had a church when it was done, so praise God for that. All the sermons are online if you want to go back and and listen. But when you get to verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, loud voices like clapping and shouting maybe, Psalm 47. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the world. Of our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders. Let's read a little bit more. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God. Fell on their faces and worshiped God saying. We give thanks O Lord God the Almighty. Who are and who were. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time for for the reward for your bondservants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. The small and the great to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple, bad translation, sanctuary is a better word. Maybe even the old word tabernacle. Of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of the covenant appeared in that sanctuary. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And then it moves into this really wild stuff about a dragon trying to eat a woman who's giving birth to a child. And it's just nuts. And we don't have time for that. So, But what we see is, is that in this section, it has the sound of a start to the rain. But if you look at it closely, this one who has dominion, it says you were and you are and you will. So it's encompassing the notion of the eternity of the dominion. The unique shift happens when the fallen, broken realm of humanity now comes under the fully realized authority of the one who was always king over it. And those who were in opposition to that king are no more. Friends, there is a great day coming where the fullness 
of the kingship of Jesus will be realized everywhere because the redeemed will be fully conformed to his image and those who oppose him will be cast out. And I agree with you. We're not at that moment right now. We're not. And I don't even have to look at the world out there to see that we're not at that moment yet. All I have to do is look at the waywardness of my own heart, even in its redemption, when it still pursues the things of this world rather than the things of Christ. And I say with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But what we see here is that Christ is king. Even while the world is still broken, Christ is king. Praise God. Wouldn't it be an unsettling thought to think that Christ isn't somehow king and the world is broken? What a terrifying place this would be to live. But I can live with great confidence in this broken world because I know that Christ is king. And because of his kingship, he will redeem this broken world at some point. Because he's redeeming this broken man. Praise be to God. Let's flip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14. If you were to back up there, it talks about Babylon. It talks about the enemies of God. It talks about the beast. The woman sitting on the seven mountains. Many of you know that I take the book of Revelation as I think it should be taken. As apocalyptic literature filled with metaphors. Like, that's, I think, how you should take it. I know some of you read it in a little more literal way, and that's all right. I just would like for you to read it literally in a more consistent way. So don't just read the numbers literally. Like, let this stuff be, like, literal, too. There's this giant, earth-sized woman sitting on these huge mountains. And, like, these crazy scorpions with men faces and flowing Fabio hair that are coming to, like, attack people. Don't turn the scorpions into helicopters. That's not cool. If you're going to be literal, let's be like real literal. Let's have a seven-headed dragon with ten horns. Dude, that's an awesome movie. I'd buy two tickets to go see that. Like, that's cool. Like, like if it's going to be literal, I want it to be that kind of literal. Like, when all this stuff starts happening. Like, that would be awesome. So, we have this ginormous woman sitting on these seven mountains and a beast coming out of the ocean. Okay, and then, these will wage war, verse 14, against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. Now, why, why is the Lamb's victory guaranteed? Because remember, this connects to what we just saw in chapter 11 about the, this realm and that realm becoming one kingdom because the, the Lamb has victory. Why is it that the victory of the Lamb is guaranteed? It gives us the answer right here. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Friends, that's Psalm 47. What did he do for us? He put people under our feet. Put nations under us. Look at what it says. It says that that he overcomes them. Because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Friends, aren't you so glad this morning that Jesus is King? 
and those who are with him. Friend, I pray that you are one who's with him this morning. What is your name per the 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 great word of God? You are called and you are chosen and you are faithful. He lets you have victory with him. And then lastly, as we close, page or two forward, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. That's his name. Interesting, that was also our name just a second ago. We were called faithful. He's called faithful. I remember somewhere something about our name and his name would be written on our forehead. I don't know, it's almost like all of this makes sense. Okay. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now, I want you to hear the description of him and see if he's not worthy of worship because he should be feared. What we're about to read is not a, oh, you should respect Jesus more. Oh, you might should be in awe of him. No, listen to this description of Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Why? Because he's the king of kings. All kingdoms are his kingdoms. All crowns are his crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Do you hear that? Now, if we were to take this hyper-literal, one really big sword coming out of his mouth to slay all the nations with. That's That's impressive. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh. And by the way, the thigh for a king in this time and in this culture was the place where he would also rest his short sword that he would pull to have battle and to and to wage war. It's a picture of warfare and victory, the notion of the king's thigh. Notice what it says. And it says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And what is the name written victoriously on the thigh of the king? King of kings and Lord of lords. Wow, that's good stuff. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all of the birds which fly in the mid heaven come and assemble for the great supper of God. So that you listen, listen to this so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both uh, free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their army to assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse. And against his army. And of course, if you keep reading, you find this great doom to those who stand against the king of kings. Why? Because he is our victorious king right now. And friend, it's a really long way around to get to this point as we close the sermon. I don't know 
everything that you're going through this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're battling with. I don't know what you're feeling overwhelmed and overcome by. I don't know what may be driving you to have fear and anxiety and worry in your life. But I do know this. That if you are in Christ by way of the gospel. If your life is one with his life then you, my friend, right now are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Seated on a throne with Christ. Robed in righteousness with Christ. And He has placed a crown of glory on your head. And God the Father calls you a son or daughter because you are a co-heir with the Son of God, Christ Jesus Himself. And His inheritance, which is the kingdom, is your inheritance, which is the kingdom. Sealed by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit Himself. So nothing that you are facing compares to the glory that is to be found in the love that Christ the King has for you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that your son Jesus is King. He is victorious king. He's an ever-present king. He is an all-glorious king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we now, as his people, the called, the chosen, the faithful, participate in his sovereign reign that has no end. Father, thank you that our lives that have so often been marked by defeat can and should be always lives of victory because Christ Jesus has overcome for us and has placed peoples and nations under our feet. Father, thank you for our union with Christ and our participation in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning. was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own a rebel too 
that loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I read my hell-bound grace, indifferent to your cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to